My dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was a way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think that it is strong or stark or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That is the sort of thing he cares about. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. He can argue too. Whereas in real practical propaganda of the kind, I am suggesting he has been shown for centuries to be greatly inferior to our father below. By the very act of arguing, you awake your patient's reason and once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life and do not let him ask what he means by real. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies. You don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go a wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. 
I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter suggestion. You know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. That this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line. For when I said quiet, in fact, too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind. He was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he had a narrow escape and in later years was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. He is now safe in our father's house. You begin to see the point? Thanks to the process we set to work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keeping pressure home on him, the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science, I mean real sciences, as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. There have been sad cases among the modern physicists. If he must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Don't let him get away from the invaluable real life. But the best of all is to let him read. No science, but to give him grand general idea that he knows it all and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the result of modern investigation. Do remember, you are there to fuddle him. From the way some you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was our job to teach them. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. I do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. 
Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempers uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is half-finished sham Gothic erections on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees a local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts and a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Our patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors singing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real though of course unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now. You will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard. Then on, the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration 
to laborious doing. The enemy takes risks because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. With his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own. And there it lies our opportunity, but also remember there lies our danger. If they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. All you have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, consider that I am some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the pew prove that their religion is merely hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring, even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, I am very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother, but you must press your advantage. The enemy will be working from the center outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard, and may reach his behavior to the old lady at any moment. You want to get in first. Keep in close touch with our colleague, Glubos who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you in that house a good, settled habit of mutual annoyance, daily pinpricks. The following methods are useful. One, keep his mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something inside him, and his attention is therefore chiefly turned at present to the state of his own mind. 
or rather to that very expurgated version of them, which is all you should allow him to see. Encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself, which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. Two. It is no doubt impossible to prevent his praying for his mother, but we have a means of rendering the prayers innocuous. Make sure that they are all very spiritual, that he is always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. Two advantages will follow. In the first place, his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins, by which, with a little guidance from you, he can be induced to mean any of her actions when are inconvenient or irritating to himself. Thus, you can keep rubbing the wounds of the day a little sore, even while he is on his knees. The operation is not all that difficult, and you will find it very entertaining. In the second place, since his ideas about her soul will be very crude and often erroneous, he will, in some degree, be praying for an imaginary person, and it will be your task to make that imaginary person daily less and less like the real mother, the sharp-tongued old lady at the breakfast table. In time, you may get the cleavage so wide that no thought or feeling from his prayers for the imagined mother will ever flow into his treatment of the real one. I have had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. 3. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are most unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrow, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy him. If you know your job, he will not even notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her, as he cannot see or hear himself. This is easily managed. 4. In civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words are not offensive, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow in the face. To keep this game up, you and Glubos must see to it that each of these two fools has sort of a double standard. Your patient must demand that all of his own 
utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel they can both go away convinced, or very nearly convinced, that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply ask her what time dinner will be, and she flies into a temper. Once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. Finally, tell me something about the old lady's religious position. Is she at all jealous of the new factor in her son's life? At all piqued that she should have learned from others and so late? What she considers she gave him such good opportunity of learning in his childhood. Does she feel he is making a great deal of fuss about it? Or that he's getting it on very easy terms? Remember, the elder brother and the enemy's story? Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, the amateurist suggestions in your last letter warn me that it is high time for me to write to you on the painful subject of prayer. You may have spared the comment that my advice about his prayers for his mother proved singularly unfortunate. That is not the sort of thing that a nephew should write his uncle nor a junior tempter to the undersecretary of a department. It also reveals an unpleasant desire to shift responsibility. You must learn to pay for your own blunders. The best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient from serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult recently reconverted to the enemy's party, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember, or to think he remembers, the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood, in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. That is exactly the sort of prayer we want and since it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service. Clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. 
At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that there are animals and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their mind. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If this fails, you must fall back on a subtler misdirection of intention. Whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, we are defeated. But there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him towards themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings, thereby the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start by trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they are doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. And when they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling, and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether or not they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. But of course the enemy will not meantime be idle. Whenever there is prayer, there is danger of his own immediate action. He is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours. As pure spirits and to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in quite a shameless fashion. But even if he defeats your first attempt at misdirection, we have a subtler weapon. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him which we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing, searing glare which makes the background of permanent pain in our lives. If you look to your patient's mind when he is praying, you will not find that. If you examine the object to which he is attending, you will find that it is quite a composite object containing quite ridiculous ingredients. There will be images derived from pictures of the enemy as he appeared during the discreditable episode known as the Incarnation. There will also be vaguer, perhaps quite savage and puerile images associated with the other two persons. There will even be some of his own reverence out of bodily sensations accompanying it, objectified and attributed to the object revered. I have known cases where what the patient called his God is actually located up and to the left at the corner of the bedroom ceiling or inside his own head or a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, 
you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not the person who has made him. You may even encourage him to attach great importance to the correction and improvement of his composite object, and to keep it steadily before his imagination during the whole prayer. For if he ever comes to make the distinction, if he ever consciously directs his prayers, not to what he thinks thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, our situation for the movement, desperate. All his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or, if retained, retained with a full recognition of their merely subjective nature. The man trusts himself to completely real, external, invisible presence. There with him in the room, and never knowable by him, as he is known by it. Why then is it that the incalculable may occur? In avoiding the situation, this real nakedness of soul in prayer, you will be helped by the fact that the humans themselves do not desire it as much as they suppose. There's no such thing as getting more than they bargain for. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, it is a little bit disappointing to expect a detailed report on your work, and to receive instead such a vague rhapsody as your last letter. You say you are delirious with joy because the European humans have started another of their wars. I see very well what has happened to you. You are not delirious. You are only drunk. Reading between the lines of your very unbalanced account of the patient's sleepless night. I can reconstruct your state of mind fairly accurately. For the first time in your career you have tasted that wine. Which is the reward of all our labors, the anguish and bewilderment of a human soul. And it has gone to your head. I can hardly blame you. I do not expect old heads on young shoulders. Did the patient respond to some of your terror pictures of the future? Did you work in some good self-pitying glances at the happy past? Find some thrills in the pit of his stomach, were there? You played your violin prettily, did you? Well, well, it's all very natural, but do remember, Wormwood, that duty comes before pleasure. If any present self-indulgence on your part leads to the ultimate loss of the prey, you will be left eternally thirsting for that draught of which you are now so much enjoying your first sip. If, on the other hand, by steady and cool-headed application here and now, you can finally secure his soul, he will then be yours forever a brimful living chalice of despair and horror, and astonishment which you can raise your lips as often as you please. So do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business of undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. 
give me without fail in your next letter a full account of the patient's reactions to the war so that we can consider whether you are likely to do more good by making him an extreme patriot or an ardent pacifist. There are all sorts of possibilities. In the meantime, I must warn you not to hope too much from a war. Of course, a war is entertaining. The immediate fear and suffering of the humans is a legitimate and pleasing refreshment for our myriads of toiling workers. But what permanent good does it do us unless we make use of it for bringing souls to our Father below? When I see the temporal suffering of humans who finally escape us, I feel as if I have been allowed to taste the first course of a rich banquet and then denied the rest. It is worse than not to have tasted it at all. The enemy, true to his barbarous methods of warfare, allows us to see the short misery of his favorites only to tantalize and torment us, to mock the incessant hunger which, during this present phase of the great conflict, his blockade is admittedly imposing. Let us therefore think rather how to use than how to enjoy this European war. For it has certain tendencies inherent in it which are in themselves by no means in our favor. We may hope for a good deal of cruelty and unchastity, but if we are not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy. While tens of thousands who do not go so far as that will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believe to be higher than the self. I know that the enemy disapproves of these causes, but that is where he is so unfair. He often makes prizes of humans who have given their lives for causes. He thinks bad on the monstrously sophistical ground that the humans thought themselves good and were following the best they knew. Consider too what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go. If they are at all of the enemy's party prepared, how much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them. Promising life to the dying Encouraging the belief that sickness excuses indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. And how disastrous for us the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe that he is going to live forever. 
And I know that Scab Tree and others have seen in wars a great opportunity for attack on faith. But I think that view was exaggerated. The enemy's human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption. So that a faith which is destroyed by a war or a pestilence cannot really have been worth the trouble of destroying. I am speaking now of diffused suffering over a long period such as the war will produce. Of course, at the precise moment of terror, bereavement, or physical pain, you may catch your man when his reason is temporarily suspended. But even then, if he applies to enemy headquarters, I have found that the post is nearly always defended. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, I'm delighted to hear that your patient's age and profession make it possible, but by no means certain, that he will be called upon for military service. We want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one which arouses hope or fear. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Your patient will, of course, have picked up the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him. The present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, Thy will be done. And for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross but only for the things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. Let him forget that, since they are incompatible, they cannot happen to him. Let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. For real resignation at the same moment to a dozen differently and hypothetical fates, it is almost impossible and the enemy does not greatly assist those who are trying to attain it. Resignation to present and actual suffering, even where that suffering consists of fear, is easier and is actually helped by this direct action. An important spiritual law is here involved. I have explained that you can weaken his prayers by diverting his attention from the enemy himself to his own state of mind about the enemy. On the other hand, fear becomes easier to master when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself. Considered as a present and undesirable state of his own mind, 
and when he regards the fear as his appointed cross, he will inevitably think of it as a state of mind. One can therefore formulate the general rule in all activities of mind which favor our cause. Encourage the patient to be unselfconscious and to concentrate on the object, but in all activities favorable to the enemy, bend his mind back on itself. Let an insult or a woman's body so fix his attention outward that he does not reflect. Am I now entering into the state called anger or the state called lust? Contrarywise, let the reflection, my feelings now growing more devout or more charitable, so fix his attention inward that he no longer looks beyond himself to see our enemy or his own neighbors. As regards to his more general attitude to the war, you must not rely too much on those feelings of hatred, which humans are so fond of discussing in Christian or anti-Christian periodicals. In his anguish, the patient can, of course, be encouraged to revenge himself by some vindictive feelings directed toward the German leaders. And that is good so far as it goes. But it is usually a sort of melodramatic or mythical hatred directed against imaginary scapegoats. He has never met these people in real life. They are lay figures modeled on what he gets from the newspapers. The result of such fanciful hatred are often most disappointing. And of all humans, the English are in this respect the most deplorable milksops. They are creatures of that miserable sort who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies, and then give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who turns up at the back door. Do what you will, there is going to be some benevolence, as well as some malice, in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. There is no good at all in inflame. There is no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans, if at the same time a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets in the train. Think of your man as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude all from the circles everything that smells of the enemy, but you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable qualities inward into the will. 
It is only in so far as they reach the will and are there embodied in habits that the virtues are really fatal to us. I don't, of course, mean what the patient mistakes for his will. The conscious fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth, but the real center, what the enemy calls the heart. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect or even in some measure loved and admired will not keep a man from our father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the High Command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with the cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man, not using but veritably worshipping, what he vaguely calls force, while denying the existence of spirits. Then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period, some ages are lukewarm and complacent 
and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. Any small courtier, bound together by some interest, in which men dislike or ignore, tends to develop inside itself a hothouse, mutual admiration, and towards the outer world, a great deal of pride and hatred, which is entertained without shame because the cause is its sponsor, and it is thought to be impersonal. Even when the little group exists originally for the enemy's own purposes, this remains true. We want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, but also that those who do may acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. The church itself is, of course, heavily defended, and we have never yet quite succeeded in giving her all the characteristics as a faction but subordinate factions within her have often produced admirable results, from the parties of Paul and the Apollos at Corinth down to the high and low parties at the church in England. If your patient can be induced to become a conscientious objector, he will automatically find himself one of a small, vocal, organized, and unpopular society. Then the effects of this one on one so new to Christianity will almost certainly be as good. But only almost certainly. Has he had serious doubts about the lawfulness of serving in a just war before this present war began? Is he a man of great physical courage? so great that he will have no half-conscious misgivings about the real motives of his pacifism. Can he, when near to honesty, no human is ever very near, feel fully convinced that he is actually holy by the desire to obey the enemy? If he is that sort of man, his pacifism will probably not do us much good, and the enemy will probably protect him from the usual consequence of belonging to a sect. Your best plan in that case would be to attempt a sudden, confused, emotional crisis from which he might emerge an uneasy convert to patriotism. Such things can often be managed, but if he is the man I take him to be, try pacifism. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him under the influence of partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him 
on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours, and the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, so you have great hopes that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? I always thought the training college had gone to pieces since they put old Slubgob at the head of it. And now I am sure. Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, their passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to it to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life, his interest in his work, his affections for his friends, his physical appetites, all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon, which will do us no good unless you make good use of it. To decide what is the best use of it, you must ask what use the enemy wants to make of it, and then do the opposite. Now it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this, to us a human is primarily food, 
Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life, on its miniature scale, will be quantitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings, united to him, but still distinct. And that is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish, he can only wound. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows his state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants him to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting. We design them only for the table. 
and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue, as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk, and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why has he been forsaken, and still obeys. But of course, the troughs afford opportunities to our side also. Next week, I will give you some hints on how to exploit them. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, I hope my last letter has convinced you that the trough of dullness or dryness through which your patient is going at present will not of itself give you his soul but needs to be properly exploited. What forms the exploitation should take, I will now consider. In the first place, I have always found the trough periods of the human undulation provide excellent opportunities for all sensual temptations, particularly those of sex. This may surprise you, because of course, there is more physical energy and therefore more potential appetite at the peak periods. But you must remember the powers of resistance are then also at their highest. The health and spirit which you want to use in producing lust can also, alas, be very easily used for work or play or thought, or innocuous merriment. The attack has a much better chance of success when the man's whole inner world is drab and cold and empty. And it is also to be noted that the trough, sexuality is subtly different in quality from that of the peak, much less likely to lead to the milk and water phenomenon which the humans call being in love. Much more easily drawn into perversions, much less contaminated by those generous and imaginative and even spiritual concomitants which often render human sexuality so disappointing. It is the same with other desires of the flesh. You are much more likely to make your man a sound drunkard by pressing drink on him as an anodyne when he is dull and weary than by encouraging him to use it as a means of merriment among his friends when he is happy and expansive. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure, 
All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made all the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasure which our enemy has produced, at times, or in ways, or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And ever-increasing craving for ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's heart. And the troughs are the time for beginning the process. But there is an even better way to exploit the trough. I mean, through the patient's own thoughts about it, as always, the first step is to keep knowledge out of his mind. Do not let him suspect the law of undulation. Let him assume that the first ardors of his conversion might have been expected to last, and ought to have lasted forever and that his present dryness is an equally permanent condition, having one got his misconception well fixed in his head. You may then proceed in various ways. It all depends on whether your man is the desponding type who can be tempted to despair, or of the wishful thinking type who can be assured that all is well. The former type is getting rare among the humans. If your patient should happen to belong to it, everything is easy. You have only to keep him out of the way of experienced Christians, an easy task nowadays, to direct his attention to the appropriate passages in scripture, and then to set him to work on the desperate design of recovering his old feelings by sheer willpower. And the game is ours. If he is of the more hopeful type, your job is to make him acquiesce in the present low temperature of his spirit and gradually become content with it, persuading him that it is not so low after all. In a week or two, you will be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not, perhaps, a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. Another possibility is that of direct attack on his faith. When you have caused him to assume that the trough is permanent, 
You cannot persuade him that his religious phase is just going to die away like all his previous phases. Of course, there is no conceivable way of getting by reason from the proposition I am losing interest in this to the proposition this is false. But as I said before, it is jargon, not reason you must rely on. The mere word phase will very likely do the trick. I assume that the creature has been through several of them before. They all have, and that he always feels superior and patronizing to the ones he has emerged from. Not because he has really criticized them, but simply because they are in the past. You keep him well fed on hazy ideas of progress and development and a historical point of view, I trust, and give him lots of modern biographies to read. The people in them are always emerging from phases, aren't they? You see the idea. Keep his mind off the plain antithesis between true and false. Nice shadowy expressions, it was a phase. I've been through all that, and don't forget the blessed word, adolescent. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, I was delighted to hear from Trip Tweez that your patient has made some very desirable new acquaintances, and that you seem to have used this event in a really promising manner. I gather that the middle-aged married couple who called his office are just the sort of people we want him to know. Rich, smart, superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. I gather they are even vaguely pacifists, not on moral grounds, but from an ingrained habit of belittling anything that concerns the great mass of their fellow men, and from a dash of purely fashionable and literary communism. This is excellent. And you seem to have made good use of all his social, sexual, and intellectual vanity. Tell me more. Did he commit himself deeply? I don't mean the words. There is a subtle play of looks and tones and laughs by which a mortal can imply that he is of the same party as those to whom he is speaking. That is the kind of betrayal you should specially encourage, because the man does not fully realize it himself, and by the time he does, you will have made withdrawal difficult. No doubt he must very soon realize that his own faith is in direct opposition to the assumptions on which all the conversation of his new friends is based. I don't think that the matter is much provided that you can persuade him to postpone any open acknowledgement of the fact, and this with the aid of shame, pride, modesty, and vanity, will be easy to do.
As long as the postponement lasts, he will be in a false position. He will be silent when he ought to speak and laugh when he ought to be silent. He will assume at first only by his manner, but presently by his words, all sorts of cynical and skeptical attitudes which are not really his. But if you play him well, they may become his. All mortals tend to turn to the thing they are pretending to be. This is elementary. The real question is how to prepare for the enemy's counterattack. The first thing is to delay as long as possible the moment at which he realizes his new pleasure as a temptation. Since the enemy's servants have been preaching about the word as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years. This might seem difficult to do, but fortunately, they have said little about it for the last few decades. In modern Christianity writings, though I see much, indeed more than I like, about Mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that your patient would probably classify as Puritanism. And may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. Sooner or later, however, the real nature of his new friends must become clear to him, and then your tactics must depend on the patient's intelligence. If he is a big enough fool, you can get him to realize the character of his friends only while they are absent. Their presence can be made to sweep away all criticism. If this succeeds, he can be induced to live, as I have known many humans to live, for quite long periods, two parallel lives. He will not only appear to be, but actually be, a different man in each of the circles he frequents. Failing this, there is a subtler and more entertaining method. He can be made to take positive measure in the perception that the two sides of his life are inconsistent. This is done by exploiting his vanity. He can be taught to enjoy kneeling beside the grocer on Sunday just because he remembers that the grocer could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world which he inhabited on Saturday evening, and contrarywise, to enjoy the body and blasphemous over the coffee with these admirable friends, all the more because he is aware of a deeper spiritual world within him which they cannot understand. You see the idea. The worldly friends touch him on one side, 
the grocer on the other. And he is the complete, balanced, complexed man who sees round them all. Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, he will feel, instead of shame, a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. Finally, if all else fails, you can persuade him, in defiance of conscience, to continue the new acquaintance on the ground that he is, in some unspecific way, doing these people good by the mere fact of drinking their cocktails and laughing at their jokes. And that to cease to do so would be priggish, intolerant, and of course, puritanical. Meanwhile, you will of course take the obvious precaution of seeing that the new development induces him to spend more than he can afford and to neglect his work and his mother. Her jealousy and alarm and his increasing evasiveness or rudeness will be invaluable for the aggravation of the domestic tension. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, everything is clearly going very well. I am specially glad to hear that the two friends have now made him acquainted with their whole set. All these, as I find from the record office, are thoroughly reliable people. Steady, consistent scoffers and worldlings, without any secular crimes, are progressing quietly and comfortably towards our father's house. You speak of their being great laughers. I trust this does not mean that you are under the impression that laughter, as such, is always in our favor. The point is worth some attention. I divide the causes of human laughter into joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. You will see the first among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided. But the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time shows they are not the real cause. What that real cause is, we do not know. Something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art in which humans call music. And something like it occurs in heaven. A meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experiences, quite opaque to us. Laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged. Besides, the phenomenon is of itself disgusting and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. Fun is closely related to joy, a sort of emotional froth arising from the play instinct. 
It is very little use to us. It can sometimes be used, of course, to divert humans from something else which the enemy would like them to be feeling or doing. But in itself, it has wholly undesirable tendencies. It promotes charity, courage, contentment, and many other evils. The joke proper, which turns on sudden perception of incongruity, is a much more promising field. I am not thinking primarily of indecent or body humor, which though much relied upon by second-rate tempters, is often disappointing in its results. The truth is that humans are pretty clearly divided on this matter into two classes. There are some who know passion is as serious as lust, and for whom an indecent story ceases to produce lasciviousness precisely in so far as it becomes funny. There are others whom laughter and lust are excited at the same moment by the same things. The first joke about sex because it gives rise to many incongruities. The second cultivate incongruities because they afford a pretext for talking about sex. If your man is of the first type, body humor will not help you. I shall never forget the hours which I wasted, hours to me of unbearable tedium, with one of my early patients in bars and smoking rooms before I learned this rule. Find out which group the patient belongs to, and see that he does not find out. The real use of jokes or humor is in quite a different direction. It is specially promising among the English who take their sense of humor so seriously that a deficiency in this sense is almost the only deficiency at which they feel shame. Humor is for them the all-consoling and, mark this, the all-excusing grace of life. Hence, it is invaluable as means of destroying shame. If a man simply lets others pay for him, he is mean. If he boasts of it in a jocular manner and twists his fellows with having been scored off, he is no longer mean, but a comical fellow. Mere cowardice is shameful. Cowardice boasted of with humorous exaggerations and grotesque gestures can be passed off as funny. Cruelty is shameful, unless the cruel man can represent it as a practical joke. A thousand body or even blasphemous jokes do not help towards a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows. If only it can get itself treated as a joke. 
and this temptation can be almost entirely hidden from your patient by that English seriousness about humor. Any suggestion that there might be too much of it can be represented to him as puritanical or as betraying a lack of humor. But flippancy is the best of all. In the first place, it is very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue, or indeed about anything else. Any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but very serious subject is discussed in a matter which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man and the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know. And it is quite free from the dangers inherent to the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect. And it excites no affection between those who practice it. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, Obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is lest, in attempt to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected his change of course are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however, slowly heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one, who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that we do not have to contend with the explicit repugnance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy, feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. This dim uneasiness needs careful handling. If he gets too strong, it may wake him 
and spoil the whole game. On the other hand, if you suppress it entirely, which, by the by, the enemy will probably not allow you to do, we lose an element in this situation, which can be turned to good account if such a feeling is allowed to live, but not allowed to become irresistible and flower into real repentance. It is one invaluable tendency. It increases the patient's reluctance to think about the enemy. All humans, at nearly all times, have some such reluctance. But when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, this reluctance is increased tenfold. They hate every idea that suggests him, just as men in financial embarrassment hate the very sight of a passbook. In this state, your patient will not omit, but he will increasingly dislike his religious duties. He will think about them as little as he feels he decently can beforehand, and forget them as soon as possible when they are over. A few weeks ago, you had to tempt him to unreality and inattention in his prayer, but now you will find him opening his arms to you and almost begging you to distract his purpose and benumb his heart. He will want his prayers to be unreal, for he will dread nothing so much as effective contact with the enemy. His aim will be to let sleeping worms lie, as this condition becomes more fully established. You will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations, as the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness. And as habit renders the pleasure of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, for that is what habit fortunately does to a pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering soul. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers, or his work, or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversation he enjoys with the people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. 
so that at least he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong, and nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. In drumming of fingers and kicking of heels, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones or signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, it seems to me that you take a great many pages to tell a very simple story. The long and the short of it is that you have let the man slip through your fingers. The situation is very grave, and I really see no reason why I should try to shield you from the consequences of your inefficiency. A repentance and renewal of what the other side call grace, on the scale which you describe as a defeat of the first order. It amounts to a second conversion, and probably on a deeper level than the first. As you ought to have known, the asphyxiating cloud which prevented your attacking the patient on his walk back from the old mill is a well-known phenomenon. It is the enemy's most barbarous weapon and generally appears when he is directly present to the patient under certain modes not yet classified. Some humans are permanently surrounded by it 
and therefore inaccessible to us. And now for your blunders, on your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed. Because he enjoyed it, and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as not to see the danger of this? The characteristics of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real, and therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. Thus, if you had been trying to damn your man by the romantic method, by making him a kind of child herald, or worther, submerged in self-pity for imaginary distress, you would try to protect him at all costs from any real pain, because of course, five minutes genuine toothache would reveal the romantic sorrows for the nonsense they were, and unmask your whole stratagem. But you were trying to damn your patient by the world. That is palming off vanity, bustle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill by contrast all the trumpetry which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value, and that the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all, that it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it, and make him feel that he was coming home, recovering himself. As a preliminary to detach him from the enemy, you wanted to detach him from himself, and had made some progress in doing so. Now, all that is undone. Of course, I know that the enemy also wants to detach men from themselves. But in a different way, remember always that he really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks of their losing their selves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality. All boasts, I am afraid and sincerely, that when they are holy, is they will be more themselves than ever. Hence, while he is delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills to his, he hates to see them drifting from their own nature for any other reason. 
and we should always encourage them to do so. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are like raw material. The starting point with which the enemy has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world, or convenience, or fashion, for a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin. Even if it is something quite trivial, such as a fondness for county cricket, or collecting stamps, or drinking cocoa, such things, I grant you, have nothing of virtue in them. But there is a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake, and without caring two pence what other people say about it, is by that very fact forearmed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favor of the best people, the right food, the important books. I have known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambitions by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about his new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in a human soul. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.